Welcome to Transforming Talent, a podcast brought to you by Manpower Group. My name is Georgia Byrne. And I'm Georgina Huntley. So I guess it's hard at the moment to ignore that we're living in a time of absolute rapid growth in the world of AI. I think recent advancements such as ChatGPT, that all-knowing AI software that can write pretty much anything under the sun when given the uh, the prompt, has sparked real conversation across the globe, bringing so many questions to the table about how society is going to function moving forward and how AI will play a huge part in that, for better or for worse. So I guess the main question that seems to be floating around is should we be afraid of AI or does AI come in peace? And to answer this question for us and to help us understand a little bit more about what the world with AI means for talent acquisition, we're joined today by our guest, Dr. Thomas Chamorro from Music. He's written over 150 scientific papers and 10 books on the psychology of talent, leadership, innovation and AI, including his new book, I Human, AI Automation and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tomas. For those listeners who may be a little bit nervous about this topic, can you give us, Thomas, a very simple description of exactly what AI is? Sure. And uh, thanks for having me on the show, first of all, and it's great to see you. Um, The best way to understand AI, which of course means artificial intelligence, is as a prediction machine. So basically, AI is mostly computer code which has the ability to identify hidden patterns in very large data sets. And what's unique about this kind of software or computer code is that it has a relentless ability to improve and get better, even with minimal human instructions or supervision. So what might start as a relatively accurate or okayish accurate Uh, prediction can end up being remarkably accurate and reliable. And of course, most of us are exposed to AI in our everyday lives, usually in the form of recommendation algorithms or uh, algorithms that simplify our decision making, whether it's when we listen to music on Spotify or pick films on Netflix or buy things on Amazon or curate our newsfeed on Twitter, LinkedIn, or our Instagram or TikTok feed. Algorithms are really just recipes. So think about a recipe that can improve and tweak itself, perfect itself, and become better and better over time, so long as the data that it uses to learn is itself reliable and not too noisy or corrupt. What do you think it is about AI that scares the older workforce generation? Well, first of all, I think it's not just the older workforce generation. I think um, reservations, concerns, fears vis-a-vis AI are pretty generalized, although it's fair to say that perhaps among you know Gen Zs or younger people, digital natives, they're less bothered by it because they interact with technology on an everyday basis and they've grown up you know, under the influence of AI. But I think generally human concerns about or around AI 
uh, are fed by sensationalist news stories in the media of AI coming to eliminate jobs and make humans irrelevant. And then, of course, you can go back 20, 30, 50, or 80 years and see the depiction of AI that we've grown up with and that influenced us from fiction and sci-fi works where AI is mostly depicted as, mm-hmm. you know, killer cyborgs or Terminator-like machines or robots that will come to uh, exterminate or annihilate humanity. This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. But we're very, very far from that, just like we're very far from artificial general intelligence or singularity. And it's very clear that humans are still in the driving seat and that most of the inventions and applications of AI have the objective to actually uh, simplify, standardize, or ease certain tasks in order to free up humans for more creative or intellectual endeavors. You know, when we say older workers might be especially averse to AI, well, I mean, that's probably true to any other technology. It's normal, it goes with generations, although of course, you know, there are exceptions. It, it actually depends mostly on your curiosity and your interest in technology and how you use it and whether you depend on it in your everyday life or not. Thomas, how do you build and maintain and keep your own knowledge on topics like AI and human intelligence up to date? We know that you are living and breathing this every minute of the day. And what is what is some advice that you could give to our listeners about these topics? How do they keep up to speed with the latest developments of what is going on in, in the AI landscape? I'd say, first of all, you know, make time, make some time in your day or in your week to actually cultivate your learnability, your hungry mind, and feed your thirst for knowledge. This is definitely an area worth investing because AI is the defining technology of our times. Then probably, you know, find a medium that suits you best. Some people read, others listen to stuff. You know, you have uh, obviously a lot of books that go into a lot of detail. And of course, there are so many podcasts dedicated uh, to covering AI. So I think, look, with very minimal investment, perhaps 20 or 30 minutes every day, curating your news stories and your medium in the way that you prefer to consume this information and have access to facts is a very, very simple way to go from very little knowledge to being relatively informed. And of course, for those of you who are using GPT, uh, which is itself an AI platform and tool, uh, there's a lot that you can learn through asking it or interacting with it around questions uh, on what artificial intelligence is and is not. And mostly on that subject, it is actually a pretty informed uh, source of information. In the age of AI, when we're all becoming more impatient, more biased, more self-centered, and maybe the most concerning when it comes to workplace behaviors, far more predictable, where is AI in HR going to be most effective and equally the most disruptive, in your opinion? It is true that when we think about the impact that artificial intelligence has had on individual human behavior, so far, 
there's a lot to dislike about it. You know, whether we are aware of it or not, the sticky platforms that uh, AI inhabits and that basically harbor AI use algorithms to turn us into an exaggerated version of ourselves, restricting us um, you know, from accessing content that is discrepant with our views and attitudes and only feeding us content that confirms our assumptions or beliefs. So it's basically like living with people who suck up to you all the time and tell you only what you want to hear. So with that, they amplify our biases, even though, let me be very clear about this, you know, humans have not needed AI to become biased creatures. We are biased by design and have managed to be perfectly prejudiced and biased for millennial without the help of artificial intelligence. But it's just that AI amplifies these biases, just like it amplifies our inherent egotistical tendencies and narcissism. Social platforms, again, which are the natural habitat for AI, have normalized narcissism. In the real world, maybe for those of you who still go to an office, if you go around the office just talking about yourself, not listening to others and telling people what you did over the weekend and that you checked into the business class lounge and sharing what your cat had for breakfast yesterday, <laughs> people will label you as a pretty obnoxious colleague uh, and a very pathetic kind of attention-seeking insecure narcissist. But in social media um, realms, this will make you an influencer and actually get you brownie points. So that's at the individual level. And the main intention and objective that I had when I wrote iHuman is to raise awareness because humans are also capable of adapting to these situations and self-regulating and actually motivating themselves to breaking certain habits, right? So just like when fast food emerged, it's very tempting to order in and not move and have access to high caloric, high sugary food that is cheaper and faster to arrive without the need to buy ingredients in the supermarket or learn how to cook. Fast food has also given us farm-to-table movements and slow food and has uh, enhanced the need or awareness into the benefits of eating healthy and so forth. So that's at the individual level. On the HR level, I see tremendous opportunity to leverage AI to increase fairness and meritocracy in organizations. You know, we live in a world in which, despite the fact that most organizations are awash with data, and they have a lot of data on what employees do and don't, and they actually say they want to be evidence-based and data-driven, there's still a great amount of decisions that are based on intuition, on politics, on nepotism, on privilege. And if you think of AI as an X-ray-like machine that enables you to go into an organization and look at what people actually contribute, and potentially close the gap between people's performance mm -hmm. and their individual career success in that organization, I think it can be a game changer, especially in an age when more and more organizations are truly interested in becoming more diverse and inclusive mm -hmm. cultures. So, you know, it can really be an equalizer. We have to understand that this is still work in progress. So we have to understand that sometimes things go wrong. And fundamentally, we shouldn't have double standards. The goal with these uh, experiments or initiatives is not perfection, 
but better than the status quo. So much like when a self-driving car crashes, people are scandalized and horrified, but they're perfectly okay with 1.3 million drivers dying every year, courtesy of human errors. Sometimes an AI fails at being a, a tool that we use to select people, recruit people, or enhance an interview because the recommendations that it that it turns out are still biased and sometimes sexist or racist. But we have to understand that in the real world, there is a lot of systemic bias ingrained in normal talent management and yeah. HR practices. So the goal is not perfection, but better than the status quo. I think that's really interesting. And the way, the way you talk through it makes it much clearer to understand and, and start seeing the importance of the human element as well. Um, so on that, what, what do you think it means for us considering in the future um, the skills that we need to be building, the skills we need to be thinking about? So, you know, whether it be the stronger tech-based skills or, or, or those soft skills that is the real strength of, of the human mind, where do you think mm -hmm. we should be focusing on for our listeners? So, you know, I'm a data-driven person and I must confess, I have no data on the future. Right, <laughs> So I am I, often careful when I make predictions or answer questions about the future. And, you know, all we can do is extrapolate from the past or from the present and try to identify trends that are likely to uh, be amplified or at least uh, become mainstream in, in the future. It's very interesting that you allude to hard skills and, you know, maybe kind of a tech-related skills because not so long ago, a lot of people would have bet very, very confidently and surely on things like being a software developer or a tech engineer or a programmer and knowing how to do machine learning or AI, etc. And today, you know, the newest version of GPT actually can do a lot of these things. So it's doing machine learning, deep learning, and it's a large language model that can write code. So it shows how quickly in demand or sought after skills one year ago or five years ago have already become automated or can be outsourced by machines. And the same actually goes for, uh, I would say, any technical area of expertise or credentials or hard skills that is a bit IQ-like or geeky-like, right? So I think any problem that is somewhat algorithmic and that is well-defined and that has a single or unique correct answer will be done better by AI and humans will not be able to compete with it. Sometimes we may have deep level expertise to actually verify or check the answers and correct it, which we can all do now, you know, when we ask GPT or Wikipedia or Google search, questions in our area of expertise were typically quick to identify, you know, 20 or 30% of errors. But I think what humans should be doing if they're interested in future proving themselves and upskilling and reskilling for a likely future, if that's a continuation of what we're seeing now, is to invest in the trades that AI will probably not master. I'm talking about, you know, human or humane traits, things like empathy, 
kindness, self-awareness, deep curiosity, and, uh, you know, which comes with critical thinking and a desire to engage not in surface or superficial learning, but deep learning. I'm always a little bit upset when the term deep learning is associated with machines because it's something that humans have historically been quite good at. And also creativity, even if creativity requires us to partner with machines, with AIs, so that we can invent something that is better than they can do without us or we can do without them. So I think harnessing these humane skills is the best way to bet on your future career development. And especially if you're a manager or a leader, we're going to see more and more demand for these skills because people at work, wherever they're doing their work, are going to be so dependent and interacting so much with machines that they will really crave human validation and human empathy, kindness, consideration. Um, it is clear that AI can simulate these things, but there's a big difference between, you know, ChatGPT saying, oh, sorry, you didn't like my answer, and a manager saying, sorry, I made a mistake and I didn't know what you mean, right? So ultimately, we value these soft skills or these competencies or qualities more when they're clearly manifested in humans and not in machines. Thinking about um, diversity in the workforce and how um, we can perhaps maximise the benefit of AI to help with um, us think differently, should we be really focusing and honing in on that, how we can think differently about diversity in our organisations, in the workplace, um, to maximise the benefit of what AI will bring us? So, for example, um, a, a different approach to neuro, neurodiverse talent in the workplace. Yeah, so I think it kind of works in both ways. So it's bi-directional. On the one hand, increasing diversity, not just demographic diversity, but also cognitive mm. diversity, and ensuring that especially the people who uh, design the AI and train the AI and think about applying the AI are capable of taking different perspectives into account and really seeing the different uses and potential misuses of this technology, as opposed to having a very homogeneous and narrow-minded group actually uh, implement or design these tools would be beneficial for the organization. Um, you know, so I think sometimes bias is ingrained uh, or inherent um, in the in the training data that we use to teach algorithms to do something to the point that even a diverse group managing, adopting or designing the AI can't necessarily eliminate it, but you mitigate and reduce the probability of adverse impact and unethical issues when you have people from all walks of life represented and people from different perspectives actually think about that, right? Mm -hmm. The other direction, which is perhaps more under leverage and less widely discussed, is that AI in itself, or if you like, data or you know evidence-based kind of uh, diagnostic and analytics can be an enhancer of diversity and inclusion. I mean, diversity is generally easy to measure. You know, once you pick your categories and you know what your target or objectives are, they're easy to track. Uh, but inclusion is much, much harder to assess and to quantify. 
And yet we have seen already, especially some academic studies that have used AI, for instance, to map the social networks in an organization and reveal the hidden dynamics between people in an organization and preserving individuals' anonymity, so preserving people's identity, you can still overlay demographic information to these networks to reveal that people from the outgroup, whatever that is, right? So it could be a disadvantaged or underprivileged race, gender group, age, and social class group. You can actually show or quantify that actually they're treated differently in an organization. Another simple example, right? We have seen instances where mining metadata so not the content of email exchanges, but you know the context of email communications, you can actually model important signals of inclusion. For example, it might be that if you are a female employee, people respond to you slower than if you're a male employee. It might be that if you're a female employee, people uh, who respond to you are like you or part of your own gender group and you don't get responses from people who are uh, more senior than you and so on and so on and so on. And even analyzing the language in communication, something that we're actually going to see more and more as you know, companies like Microsoft roll out a corporate version of GPT through their integration, et cetera, and the enterprise kind of level adoption of that, we're going to see even um, important AI uses in translating the language that people use, which will enable us to quantify things like microaggressions or positive versus negative, you know, attitudes towards people from different groups, different demographic groups. So, you know, all of this is really important because, you know, when you ask people in an organization, is this an inclusive culture? Typically, you get a different response if you ask the senior leadership or if you ask most employees. And typically, you get a different response if you ask people from the in-group or people from the out-group. Those who are enjoying privilege will say, yeah, absolutely it is. And those who are disadvantaged and discriminated against will tell you they suffer. And this is just another example of how AI can be that x-ray type of machine that reveals uh, inequities and unfair dynamics in organizations who, if they really want to be more meritocratic and fair, should pay attention to this data. Yeah, that's it. It, it does. It's eye opening, really thinking about how we can be. You know, we try and do the things, the right things to create that environment of, of inclusivity. But generally, as you said, based on assumptions, and if we can be really intentional with fact, then we can make a much greater leap in inclusivity much, much quicker. Exactly. We, we touched on it slightly earlier, how some people might, um, might be considering AI as um, their biggest competition for job security in the future. What would you say is the biggest competition um, or the biggest competition of AI is? You know, I think that's, in essence, um, a false dichotomy, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's either machines or either humans. First of all, AI, like any other technology, is a human invention. So even if you're really interested in answering the dreaded question of whether machines have acquired human-like intelligence or surpass it, I mean, even if they surpass it, 
it still speaks highly of human intelligence because the ability to create something that can do smarter things than us surely makes us smarter than we were before, right? And it's no different from any other invention. We should think about AI like any other tool we invented through our history, which is something that if used wisely and if we apply our human creativity and ingenuity can help us accomplish a lot of tasks that if they were predictable to the point that there is no difference between a machine doing it or a human doing it, you know, they were ripe for automation. And that's how we free up time to engage in more creative and intellectually rich endeavors. This is no different from other innovations in the past. So, you know, people thought when photography, analog photography was invented, that there will be no more painters, like, you know, visual artists. And actually, smart visual artists start to use photography to actually add to their art. You know, if you think about the invention of pop art, it was almost an insult to other artists because here was Andy Warhol. I mean, his studio was actually called The Factory. And it was almost like this contemporary art has reached a point where it killed or made fun of art. Warhol takes his images from commercial art and from the popular culture, focusing on the most banal and familiar components of our environment. And actually, you know, that's now seen as a pretty traditional form of art in the history of uh, contemporary art and so on. Same goes for, you know, the invention of the synthesizer. It hasn't killed, uh, you know, symphony orchestra or people who perform music with analog instruments. So I think, you know, I would think about AI and ChatGPT is a good example of this as something that is really, really good and better than humans at doing things fast, efficiently, and optimizing for speed and also for uh, iterations and, you know, quantity rather than quality. If humans with some expertise adopt these tools and partner with these technologies, they can be more productive and they can actually uh, be creative in ways that they might not have imagined. So, you know, the question we should be asking is not are we at risk because this technology is going to do our job? What you should be asking yourself is how can I use this tool in order to be better, more productive, and to enjoy my work more and find angles to my job and work that actually require my human ingenuity, creativity, and intelligence. Yeah, I think that's um, yeah, being far more considerate about how, how we utilise those many efficiencies that may well be made to, to add that human element on. If you were to be talking to our listeners that are in the HR profession uh, or HR leaders out there, um, what do you think they really need to be aware of or what should, what should be their sort of top priority when it comes to AI in the world of talent? Uh, so much to say about this one, but le let me try to focus on what I think are, you know, the most meaningful or salient points. I think it's advisable to develop expertise, to try things out, to learn more about how AI can advance uh, an objective that they probably already have, which is to become more data-driven and evidence-based as an organization and as a business. And, you know, just like um, in the 90s, if you were H uh, in HR, it, it was imperative to acquire some knowledge in talent management and organizational psychology. And in the noughties, uh, it was imperative to acquire some understanding on analytics and data science, you know. 
Now you should really understand AI in all of its dimensions, including, you know, the legal, the human, the ethical, you know, the efficiency or productivity one, and so on. A really important imperative for HR professionals that I think might be the number one HR challenge for the next five years or so is to ensure that they can rehumanize work or provide a humane experience to workers and employees through their work. I mean, wherever it is that they're working, whether it's at home, in a Starbucks or in an office, I think we're so dependent on technology and so many organizations and businesses are ruthlessly optimizing their cultures and their um, kind of uh, modus operandi for efficiency and productivity where data and AI will play a bigger and bigger role. But actually what HR should be doing is to ensure that people can have some fun and experience, you know, some joy and some fulfillment in uh, work. So I think, you know, you could almost rename HR humane mm-hmm. resources for the future. Although, quite frankly, I think, you know, just like HR has been relabeled people and culture, it might be that in the not so distant future, we need to rename it people, machines and mm-hmm. culture because machines are there. But HR needs to ensure that people actually have some humane and human experiences at work, especially if they're not going to an office, especially if their interactions with others are themselves mediated or dependent by technology and AI. If we think about talent and HR leaders out there today and, and in terms of a recruitment process, what would you say to individuals, this might be for entry-level roles, it might be for call centre staff, customers or um, organisations that that, are, that have got quite a traditional recruitment process now, but are thinking about different assessment tools or AI and actually trusting technology to make a hiring decision. But there's a lot of nervousness around that. What would be some of your advice to some of those organisations that are maybe thinking about going down that road? Of course, as you know, we manage and employ a lot of recruiters, right? And uh, not just, you know, who work for us, but sometimes they are uh, on-site, in-house with our clients. And of course, we deal with a lot of recruiters that are employed by our clients as well. And to be honest, we don't see that much of a distinction between small, medium businesses or large enterprises. In fact, if you look at the major ways in which AI is used in recruitment today is mostly to automate or complement human recruiters in the most uh, repetitive, predictable, and standardized of tasks. Things like finding the right keywords and uh, signals of expertise in a resume or CV, matching them to a job ad, Uh, scraping the contents of a job ad and translating it into a skill or knowledge Mm. taxonomy. Things that, you know, recruiters can do, but it's not very efficient use of their time. And actually they can't keep up 
with the pace needed to accomplish these tasks. The major applications of AI and other forms of data science to you know, the recruitment industry have mostly uh, improved uh, efficiencies in terms of speed, not so much accuracy, right? When it comes to accuracy, we do see that recruiters can be enhanced or augmented with AI or science-based assessments. The reason is very simple, that talent and especially human potential, which is talent before it has happened, so you know, future talent, is very intangible. It's very hard to observe. You know, even if I'm a trained interviewer and I had to be in front of you two and I had to work out whether you're curious, whether you're empathetic, whether you have integrity, creativity, etc., it would be very hard for me to do it without being influenced by social stereotypes and, you know, by things that actually I should ignore. So just like, you know, Uber needs human drivers, but those drivers do a better job if they have a sat map that helps them avoid traffic and helps them guide them into the right direction, you can think about AI as the engine that will represent the equivalent of that sat map for human recruiters. And if we free up some of their time and we help them with the things that are predictable and somehow or somewhat algorithmic and decipherable, then they have a lot of free time that they can use to better manage the client and help the client understand what they really need, which is not always what they want. Of course, they can also manage the candidates or, or job seekers and help them understand what careers are a best fit for their interests, skills, and personalities. And we believe that that synergy between AI or data on one hand and humans on the other will free up humans to actually cater to the humane needs that both clients and uh, candidates have. So managing relations, managing people on an emotional level, and really interpreting the things that clients and candidates want, translating their demand and their needs into, uh, um, you know, accurate and, you know, productive or feasible uh, model of what we should actually be giving them, those things are best left to uh, human expertise. And one final point on this, right, which is especially as an example of how we are using AI with our recruiters at Manpower Group, you know, it's basically an attempt to reverse engineer the knowledge and expertise that the really good recruiters have. So when we're looking at historical data on people's decisions, recruiters' decisions, much like any other aspect of human performance, you get a normal distribution. Some people are really, really good. They manage a lot of candidates. They fill a lot of orders and they actually place people in jobs or roles where they complete the assignment, they thrive, they end up ending more money. Sometimes they end up employed by the clients because they're so good, right? When we look at data from historical placements and historical decisions, we can actually identify what it is that makes some recruiters really, really good. And then it's almost like we're reverse engineering the mental algorithm that they use. We mimic or mirror the decision-making path that they follow. What are they looking for? Why are they so good at finding potential or talent where others miss it? And that's a really good way to empower people who are on the average side or the middle of the bulk curve or on the low-performing side to actually improve their performance because you can't do it intuitively. You know, you, you have to actually 
embed some of their decision-making, first reverse engineer, and then embed it in the systems and processes that and tools that other recruiters follow to enable them to be better. And that's a great example of technology augmenting recruiters, who for us, you know, they're our main clients and our main stakeholders. You know, we say always we're not B2C or B2B, we're B2R, business to recruiters. Our goal is to enhance the productivity and the performance of recruiters by helping them do the things that are kind of boring or very difficult. Thank you, Tomas. I think, um, you know, I think it's it's clear to say that, you know, the time that you've given us today has has been really fascinating. Certainly, I know from our perspective, and I'm sure from our listeners, um, to that insight into AI and the workforce. And actually, where we started off talking about a lot of the fear, I mean, I'm certainly coming out the other side with, with positivity and excitement around it. And, and hopefully that's what our listeners are going to take from this. A, a huge thank you for your time today. Yeah, no, thank you, Tomas. Really, really interesting conversation. I think there is a lot of nervousness and fear. And I think a lot of it's unknown, actually. People just don't sometimes always understand what this means. So thank you for your time. And I guess it's it's not all doom and gloom, right? It's uh, it's not always dystopian as we might have thought. So hopefully this has provided the uh, clarity that we that we've needed um, to our listeners. So thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in once again. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast on your preferred uh, platform so you don't miss another episode. We'll see you next time. 